God, you are good, and um, we are humbled by your love. We are grateful that we get to come in here just as we are. Um, Lord, whether we are long-time um, church folk, whether we've been walking with Jesus for a long time, whether we're, we're kicking the tires, whether we're, we're cynics and skeptics and, and sojourners and seekers, Lord, uh, you have created a space for us to be here now. Um, and I pray, Lord, right now that just all of us in this room, Lord, how, like whatever state we came into this room today, Lord, that our hearts, our minds, our lives, our souls will be open and humble and pliable and perceptive, Lord, to what you have today. God, I, I pray that the words that are on the page in front of me, Lord, that they would be honoring to you, or that they would be effective for your work. And I know that, that unless you and your Holy Spirit come and catch these words of flame in our hearts and our lives, Lord, all will be for naught. So, Lord, we confess that dependence on you. And Lord, we ask you to step in now, work in us. Lord, I pray today that we would be changed because of these moments shared. Uh, so we love you. We praise you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so as Matt said, we're going to be we're kicking off the study of the minor prophets. Some would call it the like kind of the newer moniker is the Book of the Twelve, because of the stigma with minor. We'll talk about in a second. But we're picking up today with Hosea. Uh, if you're using our Bibles, which are there there underneath you, uh, if you're using one with a black border, it's on page six thirty seven. If you're using the white one with blue blue text, it is on page four thirty seven. I'm just going to say good luck keeping up today. I would probably, I would encourage you just to write down references and go back and read through Hosea later um, and kind of make, and tag your notes with the references because it's just going to be, we're covering all 14 chapters today. And so there's, and, and with that, there's different ways to take in scripture. Just before we kind of get into Hosea itself, just to think about, you know, Typically at the bridge on Sundays, we will teach through like books of the Bible in, in whole, and slowing and we'll kind of slow down. It took us two years to teach through Romans that we just finished back in May, um, and so this and that's kind of you know we, we want to make space for that in our personal lives as well as our fellowship where we are taking time to really dig into what is God's heart in Scripture, right? And we do that by saying, hey, well, what's happening in culture? What was God's intent for his audience through the author? And then we are able to, as we dig into that, we are able to understand God's truth for us. And that's how we can say and know that all of Scripture is God's counsel for all of our life today. So we certainly want to make space for that. We certainly want to continue to do that. And please continue to do that in your daily lives. There's also just like the taking, like mass intake, where you are just reading, 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 reading large chunks. And that's great for just kind of getting kind of just kind of the connectivity. What we're going to do here somewhere in between is kind of the bird's eye view, the 10,000 foot view, the helicopter view of the minor prophets. And, and the reason why I want to do this is because it's, it orients us to God's story more deeply. When you think about the minor prophets, like why are we doing this with the minor prophets? You know, let me ask you this. So first off, do you even know do we know the minor prophets? Like, who are we talking about when we say that? So that's maybe like our first clue that maybe we need to tune into this, that probably a lot of us couldn't tell you the 12 minor prophets. And then also we were to say, so say you know the 12, you can name them. We say, hey, tell me what kind of like the main message. Tell, tell me the, how, how do we get to Jesus? What's the, the message of God and the gospel in the minor prophets? Like outside of Jonah, many of us in here probably would not be able to say much about any of the others. 
So we just want to really kind of take some time, because this is a really important piece of Scripture that doesn't get a lot of attention, and it's going to be a wonderful time of us as we do this. We're going to gain and grow in our understanding of who God is. We're going to see this over and over again. Who God is, we're going to see his desire for his creation. We're going to see his creation's need for grace and his intervention. And we're going to see ultimately kind of the purpose of, of, of our lives. And so we want to take that this is what is going to come out of this time. And so as we do this, as we think about why we would approach kind of these minor prophets this way, it's kind of like this, these kind of puzzles you'll see where you get like kind of one little section of a picture at a time. And for a while, you have no idea what it is, but as the pieces get filled in, all of a sudden you can ascertain more of what's there, and then eventually you get the whole picture. So again, we just want to help us as a people get more of the clear and vibrant, vivid picture of who God is and who we are. And so we certainly want to, we want the result of this for, for all of us to be equipped to, and, and to, to grow in our understanding and our knowledge of Scripture, but we cannot miss that the, the deeper opportunity here in doing that, it's not just about gaining more head knowledge. It's not just about being able to answer a question with a cogent answer. It's about knowing God. Because as he reveals himself through his word, he is revealing himself. And we are invited in to this relationship with him. So I hope that motivates you. So quickly, why minor? I said this last week, and I'll probably say it a few more times as we go. Um, but it's not that these prophets are less important. It's not that they're less effective or accurate in their prophesying. It is merely the length of their writings. So you have the major prophets, you know, like Jeremiah, Isaiah, these guys. Longer writings. Then you have the minor prophets that are, you know, Hosea is one of the longest at 14 chapters. And if you were to look at Daniel, you're like, well, he has more chapters, so why is he not minor? But if he he's actually has more words. But some people care. But it's not that they're less important, less effective, less accurate. It's just the length of their writings. And so there are 12 in varying lengths, some 14 chapters like Hosea and Zechariah, some one chapter. We're going to love those weeks. Um, we're going to cover 10 of them as we go through these next few months because we've already covered Jonah and Habakkuk. So if you, I would really encourage you to go back and listen to those. They're both four-week, four-weekers, uh, and they were, they're two of my favorite books that we've studied on Sunday mornings. Um, so one more kind of orientation point to kind of help you see the, the scope of what God is doing through his people. As we work through these, you can see that the, the 12 prophets, you can kind of break them down into quarters of time and how they worked. And so thinking about this is before Christ, so a lower number means more recent, higher number means old, older. So in the 5th century, we see that Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi were doing ministry. In the 6th century, we see Joel and Obadiah and maybe Jonah. Then in the 7th century, we see Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. And then in the 8th century, the oldest ones, Hosea, Amos, and Micah. Okay, so just some good orientation, some good handles to hold on to to kind of orient you and kind of give you a sense of what's happening when. So as you see, Hosea is one of the oldest, and that's where we're starting. So we're not going to read the whole book, but we are going to start with 1-1. So let's read Hosea 1-1. Again, we won't have it on the screen today, um, but just listen as best you can, and, uh, and we'll, we'll do this. So Hosea 1-1 says this, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. 
So they're kind of given the time step here, showing kind of the world uh, in which he, he was ministering and prophesying. And so because we see these names and we know when they ruled, and Jeroboam here, in case you, you know some of this, this is the second Jeroboam. And so he's, this, is a kind of, uh, this is a collective of works over a few decades from around 750 to 722 B.C. was kind of what we see covered here in Hosea's writings. And Hosea was a prophet that mainly ministered and prophesied to the northern kingdom. There was a split at this time, the northern and southern kingdom, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. He is mainly focusing on the northern kingdom. <coughs> Excuse me. During this time, just to kind of give us some cultural background, during this time, Israel was experiencing this time of prosperity, there was expansion of economy. There was, you know, there was economic comfort. Their enemies were off battling other enemies, so they were kind of at this season of peace. Things were things were good during this time. There was a lot of comfort and ease. Unfortunately, what we see in Israel is a, is a pattern that we see, that's all too common. When the people of God grow comfortable, often idolatry, giving affection and worship to other things other than God rises up. And this is what was happening in Israel. The people of Israel, God's chosen people, the ones that were meant to be blessed so that they could bless the entire world, had now started turning to other gods and, and, other, and other cultures as their, kind of their, their identity and meaning. There's certainly a word for us today. I mean, I, mean, I think we find ourselves in a common place. I mean, especially living in America, there are certainly areas of the world that are not like this, especially, but in America, like, we are the land of plenty and opportunity. Our economy is getting, is increasing. Unemployment is going down. So, you know, I know that we all kind of fall in different camps on how we kind of think about this, but these are some of the realities. So we can certainly see some kind of, some peaceful realities, some comfort realities, and at the same time, we're seeing all kinds of corruption in our faces. We're seeing all kinds of abuse of power. And unfortunately, this is not just in the government. It's not just in the secular world. We're seeing this in the church as well. So I, f I mean, I think this should connect to us. This should draw us into like, it should make our ears perk up of like, oh gosh, maybe we're looking in a mirror a little bit. So we see all is well in the kingdom of Israel. But what they don't know the time, but what we know now is that they are on a downward spiral. They're just, just a little bit away from them being conquered in exile in 722. So we should certainly be concerned, not just as some history lesson, but for us today. We see some patterns. We know our moment. We don't know what the future holds. So let's, let's see what we have today. So Hosea, Hosea is prophesying to Israel in the kind of the twilight of the kingdom. They don't know it, but the light's going out. And God is using Hosea. He want, God, Hosea is God's mouthpiece. God's desire, his work, is to wake them up, is to call them back. God knows what's coming. He wants them to avoid that. So what we have in Hosea, what we're going to work through today, we see that there is this there's this vivid picture, and then there's a prophecy. In chapters 1 through 3, there's this, this picture given to, to Israel through Hosea for Israel to see and maybe, maybe wake up. And then the prophecy of chapters 4 through 14, 
lays out and kind of describes that picture. So this picture, let's start with the picture. It's, this, it's not just a metaphor. Okay, so let's just catch that. Hosea 1, 2. You're like, I said, you said you weren't going to read every verse, I promise. We're going we're gonna to pick up the pace. But Hosea 1, 2, it says this. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the, land's, the land commits great whoredom forsaking the Lord. I mean, I just said whoredom three times in one sentence. I haven't said whoredom that often, probably ever, and now I'm up to five times. And we're going to say it a few more times today. So let's just go ahead and like get comfortable with that. With that. We don't use that word every day. But but we see, like, if, it, if it hits you, you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa whoredom? Like, when was the last, like, who uses that? Like, what are we talking about? That's exactly what it's meant to do. It's meant to cause a reaction in you. It's meant to get your, your attention. It's meant, it's meant to make you say, like, wait, 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 wait. Who are we talking about here? Because, like, the people, when the prophet talks, people know that they're, people of Israel know that they're addressing them. So it's like, wait, 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 wait. Somehow I know this is meant for me, but he's using this word whoredom a lot. He's going to be using the word whore a lot, too. Like, it's meant to cause that reaction. This picture that we're given in these first three chapters is meant to get your attention. So this call, this, this is a literal call to Hosea to go and marry a prostitute. To go and marry a prostitute. So it's a humbling call for Hosea. It's also a powerful symbol. And as I said in saying it's a symbol, it's not that it's not literal. It's, very, it's a very literal call. Because think about what the prophets were meant to do. The prophets were God's way of which he communicated. They were God's mouthpiece before we were given this direct relationship with God through the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So the prophets were the way in which people heard from God. So Hosea's life, it wasn't just his words that God spoke through. Hosea's life was now meant to be an object lesson for those of Israel to see God's word for them. So this is not necessarily God's course of action. Today's sermon is not going to be about how to find your, your, your spouse in unlikely places. You know, like, that's not what this is going to turn into. Like, this is, this is not the normal course of action. But we see the way, we will see why God is working in this way. So it's not that, but even better what it is, we'll see something in full color which we all know. What we'll see today is God redeems those who have a past. God goes and he seeks out and he accepts and he loves those who seem tainted and unforgivable. And we can all look at our lives and we all know that every one of us in here, we all, we all had that little, we all had those pockets of our life that are, that are ugly, that we want to hide, that we're ashamed of. And we're going to see this beautiful picture that God redeems the unlovable. He calls in and accepts and reclaims the tainted, those who have a past. God's sovereign grace will be in full view. So let's read verses 3 and 4. So he went and took Gomer. This is a prostitute. She's the daughter of the blame. And she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. For in, just as, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. So Hosea goes in obedience, and he finds this prostitute, Gomer. He marries her, and they have a child. They name him Jezreel, which means God sows. That's what Jezreel means. And so this is, a, again, a picture. This is intentional. And so what we see here is evo evoking this work of reaping 
and sowing. And that can be in the positive. What we know here is that God is meant to, to bring this picture of that he will reap and sow a righteous work in the people of Israel. And that can be on the positive side, and that can be through judgment and wrath, right? And so we see what we're going to see. Unfortunately, right now, this is a sowing and a reaping, kind of, to, to again, responding to sin, responding to rebellion, responding with judgment. And then it continues in verses 6 through 8. We see that Hosea and Gomer, Gomer continue to have two more kids. They have, a, they have a daughter, then they have another son. The daughter's name is, is, is Le-Ruhama, which is no mercy. The son's name is Lo-Ami, which is not my people. Not exactly great names for your kids. You know, so if you're, we, we, we're popping out a lot of babies, we probably got some more on the way that we don't know about. These are available, maybe not want to use them. But we see, like, well, so what is Hosea's family? This prophet of God, his family is what? Okay, he's married a prostitute. And you just think about it. This is a prophet. That would be scandalous. It would be, it would be hard to fathom, like, go and marry a prostitute. Go and take her as your own. She's been unfaithful in every way. Now go take her as yours as someone that would be faithful. And now go have kids with her. Name your kids God sows. Name your kids God no mercy. Name your kids not my people. Dramatic picture for Israel to observe. It is certainly a picture of judgment to come. It is stark. It makes your mouth gummy. It takes all the saliva away. You're just like, this is, this, is, this is heavy. But it's not meant just to bring woe and leave you there to wallow in the woe. When we get low in this indictment, what we see is God's heart is, once again, as we said earlier, is meant to wake up and woo his people back to him. Because he is their covenant God. He made a covenant with them. And he is wanting to restore them. So he's like, yeah, I, I, this is where you're at. This is what's coming if you do not turn. But this, you know, this, it's interesting. People get hung up like, well, God says he's not going to show mercy. How can God not show mercy? Let us just be reminded. What is Mercy. Mercy is not experiencing the punishment that you deserve. So it's not that God withheld something that was deserved. He let them have their own way and let them head into what they were pursuing. So we see that in this, he's like saying, hey, you're, you're going the wrong way. Come to me. You will miss out on my mercy. You will miss out on the proclamation that I said you are my people. And it seems like God is building up this, this kind of head of steam to lay down the hammer. But then in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1, he slips in this, this little reprieve of, of like heart and grace to his people in the midst of his indictment. It says, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And if you don't know, that's, that's hearkening. They, they would have immediately thought of the original covenant with Abraham, where God promised through Abraham that they would be blessed and his offspring would be greater than you could count. And through that offspring, the entire world would know God's name and be blessed. So he's immediately calling them back to that, saying, this is who you're meant to be. And he says, and in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. And so he just proclaimed that with naming the child, not my people. It will be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together so the people shall be reunited with each other and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Israel. So we see this calling back to the original promise. We see this promise of reconciliation to each other and to God. 
So let's not miss the character of God here. So we see this, this picture of prophecy and judgment and deliverance and redemption. What a beautiful picture. We've just seen that it said, a day of reaping is coming where there will be no mercy as those who are not my people. But now we see this promise of mercy and restoring of people. God's judgment is meant to woo us back. Hear God's heart and his pleading to his people. Hosea 2.2, God says, he, tells, he says, Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. And so there is this pleading heart, turn back, and then we see this work. She shall, in 2.7, she shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me than, than now. So we start seeing this kind of work of, of trying to intercede and, and keep from destruction. Then Hosea 2.16, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer you will call me my Baal. You will turn away from idols and turn back to me. So we just see God's pleading heart for his people that are just spitting in his face. Hosea's marriage is a picture of the rebellious people of Israel against their God. Hosea's marriage is a dramatic, beautiful picture of God calling out to his unfaithful people to return to him. Let's look at the next few verses for this beautiful picture of unconditional redeeming love in Hosea 2, 17 through 20. It says, For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. I mean, that's complete restoration. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness that you shall know the Lord. Does that sound like an unloving, unpursuing, unself-sacrificing God? What an amazing heart to restore and pursue. So what does Gomer do? How does she respond to this? Does she respond like, then like oh, now I see. Hosea 3, 1 through 3 shows what she does. It says, and the Lord said to me, this is speaking to Hosea, it says, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell with me as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. So what's happening? So Hosea has gone and taken Gomer, a prostitute, as a wife. He has loved her as a wife, had kids with her. And then at some point, she decided it was better to go out and become an object once again. To go out. She put herself back into the sex trade. And I don't know how much time passed, but she finds herself on the auction block once again. And there's a crowd of people, and the scene is there, and Hosea walks up, and he sees his wondering wife, his unfaithful wife, who thought better to be sold than to be loved by him. And let's let the, play, the scene play out. And, you know, so the auctioneer's like, hey, okay, we've got this one. Who wants her? How much will you pay? And we see five shekels, a bit of five shekels. We see 10 shekels. Then Hosea says, 15 shekels. 
15 shekels and a homer and a lethic of barley. And the auctioneer says, anyone else? Going once, going twice, sold to the man in the back. What's your name? He says, I'm Hosea. He doesn't stop there. He says, I'm Hosea, and she's my wife. Because he didn't buy her as a prostitute. He redeemed her as his bride once again. He took her in and restored her to his bride. You, you see this, and I think we can, through our, our cultural lens, we see you, this, this statement from Hosea to Gomer. It says, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. And we read that and we're like, well, dude, man, that doesn't sound like love. But then he says, so will I also be to you. It is this covenantal, this marriage giving oneself to another. Hosea was called to God's persistent, unconditional, self-giving love. What an amazing picture for all of us. How many times have we found ourselves unfaithful? How many times have we said, I will never go that way again? And how many times do we find ourselves down that familiar road, hanging our heads, hiding behind a, a, a pillar so that God can't see us? And he's saying, no, I'm reclaiming you as mine. Does it hit you personally? Do we see ourselves in Gomer? Not, not many of us could say we're prostitutes. Not many of us can say, if any, can say we've returned to prostitution in, in spite of a loving spouse. Not many of us can experience the extremity have experienced the extremity. Some, some of us have, some of us haven't, as far as the dramatic nature of what we're seeing. But if we're honest, we're all unfaithful. We all have unfaithfulness in us. So I pray today that we hear and we are faced with God's magnificent love and glorious holiness. We see the marriage of those two things. We see that we each can be the unfaithful ones, but we also see that God purchased us. He purchased me. He purchased you. He's redeemed us. He's redeemed me. He's redeemed you. 1 Corinthians 6, 20 says, You were bought with a price. You're not your own. Therefore, honor God with your body. And this is not just a call to behavioral holiness. It certainly should be that we, we want our lives to reflect the manner of God as we have been created and restored in. But it's also this call of like, how could, you, how could it not claim every bit of you, heart, mind, body, and soul? What a gift. What a beautiful picture of God's love and grace. What a, what a also a terrifying picture of his holiness. So that's the picture. So 4 through 14, we get through into this prophecy. The prophecy presents the same sort of picture we see in the prophecy, we'll see this plight of sin, we'll see a profession of love, and we will see a plea of repentance. A plight of sin, a profession of love, and a plea of repentance. We're going to try to work through these pretty fast. Um, so we see this plight of sin. We see the people of Israel that they had worshipped other gods. Again, they were created. They were God's set-apart people. 
Like, we have to connect with that. They went and they made idols. They threw God's love and worthiness in his face. Hosea 4.14 tells us that the bride committed adultery and their men went, the brides committed adultery and the men went aside with prostitutes. Hosea 5.5 says the people of Israel were proud. They were haughty. They were arrogant. Hosea 6.7 says, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dwelt faithlessly with me. Also in chapter 6, we see the people of Israel called murderers, thieves, drunkards, liars, and even evildoers. We see they made empty oaths. They had false balances. They worked dishonest with each other. They didn't fear the Lord. They trusted in their idols. They trusted in their deeds. They even trusted in their enemies like Assyria. You have to remember to their nation, being the nation of Israel, is part of their identity. It's part of what God had given them to be. So to go and turn to Assyria was turning away from God's provision for them. We see they, they made, that they continued in this way. We see that in 4.9 that the priests were corrupt. We see in 7.5 the kings and the princes were corrupt. We see in 9.7 that the prophets of God were called mad fools. They were disregarded and disdained, the ones who spoke for God. Chapter 10, it says their hearts were false. They did not fear the Lord. They did not know the Lord. They had forgotten their maker. They had forgotten who they were. Again, it's bleak. It's, it's, you can see why they're in their twilight years. And so let's just, re- real quick, kind of in chapter 4, 1 through 2, a quick summary of kind of their, 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 kind of their plight, where they are. It says, hear the word of the Lord. This is chapter 4, 1 and 2. O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. They are swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. So Israel had grieved and sinned against God in every way imaginable. So let's just keep going. We're going to keep going down. How did God describe his people? Right? How does, how does God, how, he's just calling it for what it is. Listen to his language. In 5.7, they're called alien children. The ones who belong now, don't, they don't belong. That's what he sees in them. 7.4, he says they're all adulterers. They're like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire before the work of leavening of the bread is done. So again, this picture of them just ejecting from their purpose. 7.9, it says, Strangers devour Ephraim, which is one of the tribes of Israel, devours Ephraim's strength, and he doesn't even know it. He has, he's, just, he's just oblivious to what's happening. And in verse 11, it says, Ephraim is like the silly, ignorant dove that turns to anyone that throws out a morsel. As they, and again, as they, he's seen them turn to Egypt and Assyria. So he's just turning to circumstantial provision as opposed to God's glorious, gracious, sovereign provision. And it's just like this mindless, dumb animal. 8 9, he says he's gone up to Assyria like a dumb, wandering donkey. Again, just going wherever without any thought of the consequence. Not a great way to be described. Not a great way to be described. And I hope this helps us understand the grievance of Israel, the grievance of their sin, and the grievance of our sin against a holy God. He has a purpose for us. He created us for a purpose. He created us for fellowship with him, for his glory, and Christ for Christ's mission. We can't make the mistake of being generic about our sin against God. He has a claim on every one of us. Whether you acknowledge it or not, he as creator has a claim on you. And we are tempted, we are too tempted 
to be to just generalize our sin. And if you're a Christ follower, it's more specific to us. We are we are tempted just to kind of like say, "Oh, I forgive me of my sins," and we kind of are okay to acknowledge kind of the, the the you know like, "Oh, I'm prideful. Help me with my pride or whatever." But we kind of like to generalize. But we we need to be careful not to. We need to pray the Lord would help us see our, our way so that we can bring it to Him and find restoration. Because the covenant of, of God is akin to the covenant of marriage. It's personal, as I already said. This is an exclusive covenant. Covenant. It's the covenant of God forsaking all others. There are no ands in this covenant. We don't stand on the altar getting married and say, I will love you forever, and I'm going to love this other person. Or I'll love you for a while, but then I'm going to go pursue some other lovers. That's not, that's not, this, that's not this, this covenantal love. So just as you demand this in your covenant with your spouse or your future spouse or in, in just in these deep personal relationships, um, God demands the same. His covenant is worthy of there being no other ends. That is, that is spiritual adultery. That's the picture that is meant to come from Hosea and Gomer. No spiritual adultery. It is no, it was, you forsake all others because guess what? The people of Israel still did a lot of acts of love. They kept their calendar of feasts. They made their sacrifice. But they had lots of ands. They had a lot of ands. And that was, com- that, was a com- that was completely outside of what God had created them for and called them to. Six, four through six. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. No ends. He's saying, hey, I see in you. And how often are we like this, that our, our, our love and devotion and affection for God is like the morning dew. It's out in the freshness of the morning, and it's there, but as soon as the sun comes out, it evaporates and goes away. We are we fair-weather fans, maybe, of God. Like we, we, we are there when our circumstances are good, and we say God loves us. When our circumstances are hard, we say God is not there. He does not love me. He is not good. We turn to the things of this world for our security and identity and meaning and worth when God says, I am that for you. God's love is not fleeting, and we are called to and invited to a non-fleeting love for him. He sustains us in our storms and trials. He is the God of the storm. He sustains us. We see through all of Hosea that this denial of God comes with judgment. 8.7 says, they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. God in his wrath is compared to a jealous husband, a frustrated shepherd here, a destructive moth, and a ferocious lion. So the picture of God we see in Hosea is one that loves his people, who is committed to his holiness and sovereign plan, has a clear purpose for his people, and will do whatever it takes to lead his people to his love and their purpose. And that our sins, like I said, are personal sin against him. So we see the plight of sin. It's destructiveness to our own lives. And the worst is the separation it causes us from, from God and his purpose. So this is absolutely a story of judgment. But as you said and as you have seen and heard, it is also a love story. So God will leave no room for sin in his people, but he responds with great love and a heart of restoration, just like a parent does a child. We can disapprove of our child's actions. We can address our child's actions. We can correct them and corral them give consequence to them, but with feeling absolute, undying, self-giving, I would lay down my life for you, love, and do it for their restoration and good. 
This is the picture we see here. So next, we have the, after the plight of sin, we have the profession of love. We're, we're picking up pace. So we saw God as the righteous, sovereign, cosmic judge, but we also see him in such pictures of love as the forgiving husband. You think about this in contrast to the things we just heard, as, as a forgiving husband, as the healing physician, as the loving parent, as a protecting lion, lion and as a life-giving dew. So instead of a destroying lion or an evaporating dew, he is a protecting lion, a life-giving dew. Uh, chapter 2, 14 through 15 says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. So we see that even in the midst of this dramatic picture of, of, of unfaithfulness, God speaks his heart to restore in love. There are, there are repeated expressions of this kind of love throughout all of Hosea's proclamation of both the picture and the prophecy. And we see in this that true love has room for hurt. It has room for anger and disapproval while still loving deeply. We're going to read one of these whole chapters in full right here. I want to read almost full. We're going to miss one verse. I want to read chapter 11 to see the heart of God. We're going to read 1 through 11. So listen for the heart of God expressed. Think about all that we've been talking about. It says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to, Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. See this work of God. He's like, they don't even know it's me, but I'm doing it. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not ex execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man. He's saying, I am not limited to do things the way you would do them. The Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion when he roars. His children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Oh my gosh. I hear the heart of our God for the church, for those around you. God is beckoning, no, and also for you. God is beckoning us back to him, our first love. But there is only one way back. We've seen the plight of sin. We've seen the profession of love. But now we see that there is only one way back. That brings us to this plea for repentance plea for repentance. We avoid repentance because of some negative connotations. We think of the, the person holding the sandwich board on the corner, you know, yelling, screaming, mostly, most likely words of hate instead of love, truth, and grace. 
we avoid repentance because of kind of the presence of our culture where there's really no all the way wrong or no all the way right. So how can we tell anyone to repent? Repent is not just to say, forgive me, but it is also to say, I, forgive me because I've sinned against you and now I turn to you. I turn away from whatever I was pursuing or giving worth and uh, worship to and turn to you. This is what repentance is. So it's this plea for repentance to turn away from whatever else it is and to turn to him, their God. So we have to see here in Hosea that if they would only acknowledge how they've sinned against God, if they would confess them before the confess him uh, before others and cry out for mercy, they would actually experience God's showering of love and mercy and grace and restoration. That comes through repentance. But they won't. And we mustn't cheapen God's grace by not calling each other to repentance. Because it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It is, God's, it is repentance that leads us into wholeness. It is repentance that leads us into fellowship. And there is no greater place to be. Hosea 5.15, we see a call to the people to return to the seeking God. So he's not just up waiting. He is pursuing, making himself known, saying, come to me, show me acts of love. Hosea 6, 1 through 3, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. You hear the heart of God. How many times have I said that? It's hard to imagine, but we've already seen it as we've been working through this, that they didn't call on God. They met the end of themselves. They did get to the point of desperation. They did call out. But we see in Hosea 7, 14 through 16, that when they returned and called out, when they cried out, they cried out to the wrong things. 7, 14, they do not cry to me from the heart, but they well upon their beds for grain and wine, they gash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. How often do we cry out for relief from our circumstances? But that's all we cry for. It's just make it stop. God says, I want you to come to me. There is nothing greater than knowing my loving care in this moment, knowing who I am, acknowledging me as Lord over all. He is the great and glorious one. He is the author of life and death. He is the one who holds and sustains all things and gives peace in the midst of the storm, as we've already said. He is the one that is making things right. So we're going to close with a picture of hope that comes through true repentance. And we see true repentance described and shown in Hosea 14, 1 through 3. We see in verse 1, a return to God. We see in verse 2, confession with our lips and we see in verse 3 that we renounce all other means of deliverance this is true repentance let me read that verse 1 of chapter 14 return O Israel to the Lord your God for you have stumbled because of your iniquity take with you words and return to the Lord say to him 
Take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. Did you hear that? Did you see the return to God? Seeing that you have stumbled because of your iniquity and we can return to him. You see the confession of lips in verse 2. Just confessing, taking away our iniquity. In verse 3, renouncing all other means of deliverance. And then we see in the next few verses the promise of restoration in verses 4 through 7. It says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. The pleading, loving, promising heart of God poured out in full view. That's an invitation to you. That's the invitation our lives are meant to be to the world around us for those who are in Christ. Hear how Hosea closes in verse 9 of chapter 14. So whoever is wise, this is wise in the sense of understanding and knowing God. Let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. So this is our way to wholeness. Do you trust God? Do you trust him? Have you called on him? Have you confessed your arrogance or your pride or your rebellion against him? Have you turned from all other ways of deliverance, whether it's the work of your hands, whether it's the effectiveness of your religion, your ability to adhere to religious norms? Is it your lineage, your family name? Is it your work ethic? Have you turned from all these other things that we think deliver us? 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God's calling you to restore you. And Christ, the one who knew no sin, that became sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God, has made a way for us to be whole, restored, forgiven, and pure, and and in fellowship with the Father once again. Have you trusted him? Do you trust him daily? Do you return to the gospel every day? Do you reflect on the wonderful work of grace in Jesus Christ? Do you allow that to stir you up to see the world as, the one, as a world in need of that grace and restoration? So I pray that as we close that would be what sticks, is that we would see God as the glorious one. One who is worthy of our lives, worthy of our worship, our affection, and adoration, our obedience. That we would see that God loves 
you so much that he will do whatever it takes to turn you from destruction. And even when that work of turning often feels like destruction itself, it will lead you to life and wholeness. And if you're not a Christ follower in here, hear how seriously God takes you seeing and hearing and experiencing his love through his people. The reasons that this was so egregious for the people of Israel to live this way was that they denied God's purpose in the world. Not only denied him, but they denied his purpose. They were meant to be his people. They were also meant to be his people that brought his love and image to the entire world. So I pray that this brings us closer to the heart of God. I pray this drives us and and stirs us to live with a fervency that lasts, that's not just the fleeting moment, um, and that acknowledges God as God and our deliverer and healer. Let me pray. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for Hosea. Lord, uh, what a, a dramatic moment in history. What an obedient walk of, of someone called by you. Thank you for this word for us, God. Lord, that you redeem those who have a past. You redeem those who were tainted and have hidden parts. You make all things new. You make us beautiful in your sight. And Lord, that's all that matters. So Lord, anchor our hearts in your truth. Lord, I pray that this would not just be something of history, but it would be something of now because of Jesus. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.